Hello, welcome back to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social emotional learning. I recently sat down with Sarah Hahn and Ellie Foster, directors of education for the Kevin Love Fund, founded by NBA superstar Kevin Love, who bravely shared his own struggles with anxiety and depression after he had a panic attack during a game. Kevin Love and his team strive to support people's mental health by providing them with tools such as developing their personal vulnerability. So much of this work is about understanding our own emotions, and it's important to remember that there is no hierarchy of feelings. They are not good or bad, positive or negative, but rather intertwined. They're all a part of what was so eloquently described during our conversation as the tapestry of feelings. We sat down for this conversation shortly after the horrific shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Those first few days felt like a blur, and sitting down with Sarah and Ellie gave me, and I think all of us, an opportunity to channel our grief, confusion, and shock into a conversation about how important it is that all of us, every person, parent, teacher, child, needs tools to proactively support our mental health, both as we cope with a trauma that we have experienced far too many times, and as we build stronger communities to reduce harm and prevent violence. I am so excited to be here today to discuss all things vulnerability and social emotional wellness. But before we do that, we're going to cultivate and access some vulnerability ourselves. So I just want to take us through an opportunity to center ourselves and ground ourselves by reflecting on how we're feeling in this moment. So if we were to describe how we are feeling as if it were something that we could consume, what might that be? So for me today, I am feeling like a shishuka, a warm, hearty protein. If you're not familiar with shishuka, it's eggs, tomato, red pepper. There's a nice warm pita that accompanies it, but it's feeling really wholesome, nourishing, filled with protein to give me the strength I need to get through the rest of the day today. That's making me hungry, actually. I thought of sushi as my food that I feel today because you know how sometimes when you take a bite of a piece of sushi and it kind of falls apart, I think in light of last week's events, I'm reminded of the fragility of life and how things can fall apart unexpectedly and easily. And also the excitement, because personally today I have an older daughter who's on a Europe trip. She left yesterday on a trip with her school. And so I'm very excited for her. And my younger daughter is on her last day of middle school and she worked so hard and she got through so much emotionally and academically. So I'm feeling kind of excited, but also aware of how fragile life is. 
Sarah and I often think the same thought at the same time, but but I had a different food that kind of communicates something similar, which is, you know that ice cream that has the stripes of the different flavors in it? Vanilla, and then there's a stripe of chocolate, and there's a stripe of strawberry. I always hated that ice cream because I felt like, what the hell is the strawberry doing in there? Nobody wants it. We all try to eat around it, and then bits of the strawberry get stuck in our vanilla and our chocolate. I feel like that Neapolitan ice cream because I have a toddler that is the light of my life and we had a wonderful weekend together playing outside in the water and this morning we were reading books and it was so joyful. And at the same time, I am shattered by last week's events, shattered and deeply heartbroken. And it feels like as much as I want to focus on just the joy that brokenheartedness keeps finding its way into my life right now. And I think that's as it should be. I think that's makes sense. And probably we all feel a little bit of that. And so I'm feeling like that complexity of the both and some joy, the love of the part of life that I feel grateful for and excited about mixed in with this heartbreak and grief that keeps finding its way into almost every moment. Thank you for sharing your food items. That gives us such uh, perspective and insight into what we're all carrying into this discussion. You're both directors of education for the Kevin Love Fund, started by NBA star Kevin Love. Could you tell us a little bit about what made him create this organization, his mission, and what is it about this organization that made you want to become involved? First, to answer your question about Kevin, he had a very public panic attack that happened live on national television in the middle of a basketball game. And so on court right there for everyone to see, he experienced one of his most difficult and vulnerable moments. And instead of putting a PR spin on it or shying away from it, he decided to kind of be that change he wanted to see. And he modeled being vulnerable and he modeled bravery in the face of struggles. And he wrote this beautiful, expressive, strong essay in the Players Tribune and told his story. And the outpouring of support, it inspired him to start the Kevin Love Fund. He realized, oh, there's so many people struggling and everyone is going through something you can't see. And that's what he named our social emotional learning curriculum. And he wanted to help create something in middle schools and in high schools specifically that he wished he had had and that he felt would have really helped him. And so Ellie and I were brought on as kind of the education experts. And I had seen in my own work how being vulnerable and having a trusted adult model vulnerability impacted students. And so I was so excited to come on board. So at the same time as Kevin was modeling this vulnerability publicly, I was just finishing up my PhD and I had been studying what can teachers do to support students who had experienced trauma in their lives? And also what can teachers do to support all students with the spectrum of human emotions that includes difficult emotions? And I was part of a larger team of researchers that was doing this work and it was headed by a really pretty world-renowned professor and education researcher, and her name is Elizabeth Dutro. And what we found in this research was 
that teacher vulnerability was the single kind of crucial, most important thing that teachers could do. And the reason for this is because the norms of our school and of our culture is that we don't feel like we can talk about the hard things that we all experience in life. We feel like we have to kind of put on a happy face and the difficult things that we all go through are the things that we usually kind of keep private. But when we do share them with each other, it's really incredibly helpful for us and for young people in particular. And so it was a wonderful connecting point that I was able to take some of this research. And Kevin as well was able to share his own experience and bringing in other educators and experts. We were able to build this curriculum for high school students. And now we've expanded it to middle and college students as well. So having a live panic attack on national television is certainly a powerful, obvious way to begin a dialogue around vulnerability. How did folks react at first to this work and the idea of placing such a huge emphasis on vulnerability? Really, he got an overwhelmingly positive response to the letter that he published in the Players' Tribune. And what we've heard in response to the work that we're sharing, this pedagogy of teacher vulnerability, the reaction is usually that people feel, teachers in particular, feel incredible relief, that they don't have to check part of themselves at the door when they come into the classroom. If they've had, for example, a loss in the family, the idea that they can bring their own sadness and say to their students, gosh, I'm deeply sad I lost someone important to me, and that they can be a human being. I mean, the expectation that we have around teachers, that they're supposed to be superhuman and that they can't have emotions or be complex people is too much. And it's not good for their teaching and it's not good for the students either. So what we've seen in response to our pedagogy of teacher vulnerability is relief from the teachers. And then what we've seen in the pilot, we've been piloting our program for over two years. And what we've seen in the pilot is overwhelmingly positive results from students who, and you can imagine after this incredibly hard year that we've had, even prior to this pandemic, there were challenges in inequity and systematic racism and other challenges in school. But certainly after this last year, with students as well, the opportunity to talk about what's really on their heart, what's really weighing on them is a relief. Oh, I've been carrying this around. I've been alone with it. I can put my feelings onto the page or into my art. And it feels like a quite a relief to them as well. So we've had an incredibly positive result in our pilot program. I can imagine once folks get there, they have that uh, feeling like, wow, I can be myself. I can be honest with the people around me. But many people, I would say most people struggle opening up and making themselves vulnerable. How do you get people comfortable sharing openly and honestly, not just in a classroom setting, but amongst family and friends? Where do you begin? What do you say to the human being, be it the educator, the parent, the person who's not going through a training, but wants to access this piece of themselves wants to cultivate this sense of emotional honesty with the people in their lives, their friends and family, where do they begin? I think 
anyone, the average person, can access this vulnerability by first engaging and connecting with their own emotions. I think one thing that we don't do well, kind of as a culture, is supporting people and feeling what they're feeling. We talk about how we're feeling. Like my husband would say, how are you? I might say like, oh, I feel afraid or I'm sad. But do I really let myself move into that feeling and feel it first? And one thing that's so powerful about arts-based approaches to social-emotional learning and emotional expression is that it helps you access the feeling that you're feeling. When you write a poem, when you draw a picture, when you make a collage, when you use the arts to access your own story and your own emotions, that can be a really, I think, powerful first step. So just connecting with how am I feeling and letting yourself feel it all the way. I think sometimes we think if I let myself touch my sadness, if I let myself touch my grief, I'll cry forever. I'll never reach the bottom of the bucket. I've had that experience too in when I've had moments of sadness. But if we let ourselves touch it by making a piece of art, that can be a really powerful way of letting those emotions move through us. And I would say do that first before you start sharing all over the place with other people. Because I know in my own life, I need to first process it on my own. And then I need to kind of do baby steps. Maybe I then would share with someone I really trust, who I know is going to be kind and empathetic with me and not judgmental or tell me to cheer up. You know, I need to first feel it. And then I need to share it with someone that I really trust before I share it with a wider audience. So it's a process, I think. Part of being vulnerable, we keep using the word modeling, but is truly doing that, is doing it yourself. So for Ellie and I, when we work together, there are some days where right as we start, I'll get an upsetting email or text and it'll kind of throw me off. And I will say, can I just speak out loud that I'm feeling frazzled in the moment or my heart's beating fast because I just got this upsetting email that triggered me or Ellie might say, oh, something just happened that really upset me. So showing how you want to be treated and modeling that vulnerability in an appropriate way. It doesn't mean to tell every single problem that you're having, every thought that's in your mind, but being able to pause and kind of sink in a little bit and really hear each other and be present. And Ellie always talks about we witness each other. It's not just listening, it's witnessing each other as we share challenging stories. Well, and I think so much of that casual, superficial greeting in the pandemic, especially in the workplace as we transitioned to remote working communication and working style became even more critical. So being able to check in with someone and say, hey, how are you doing today? Because I haven't seen your face or I didn't bump into you on the way to the bathroom or on the way to get coffee the way I would if we were sharing physical space together. And the ability for the other person to say, today, I'm exhausted or I'm overwhelmed or I'm sad. And to not just say, I'm fine or I'm good, I'm okay, but authentically responding with the feeling of the day. And I found it really helpful for me to try to focus in on, how are you feeling today? Because if you asked me, I would say the last two plus years, how are you feeling? That feels like such an overwhelming, huge question. I don't even know where to begin. But if you say, how are you feeling today? Okay, I can answer that. That feels much more manageable. But where do you begin in terms of inviting, validating, welcoming vulnerability in someone else in your relationships? How do you 
not just begin for yourself, but begin with someone else and have them do that for you? Well, I think we can't control what other people do. I mean, that's the risk, right? When we decide, I want to take this relationship deeper, this feels superficial, and I want it to be a real relationship. The way that Sarah and I have found and what we've seen in the research, the most effective way to do that is to be the person, as Sarah said, who goes first, who says, that's what this is going to be for me. I'm going to, we call it setting the tone in the classroom, but it certainly would work in relationships too, right? You set the tone and then you can't control what someone else does. We can only control our own ability to illustrate it through our behavior and through the way we speak. And then to kind of set the tone to illustrate for our listener that we are going to be there for them as Sarah said, as a witness with empathy. And this is a safe space. This is a safe place for you to share what you want. But ultimately, the other person absolutely gets to decide. And I think that's healthy, like having the intention behind it. Because I know in my own life, there was a time when my husband and I suffered a a really deep loss of a child a few years ago. And at the same time as this was happening, I was teaching a course at a university of undergraduates studying to be teachers. And I was setting up this pedagogy of reciprocal vulnerability, but I wasn't ready to share the granular details of my grief yet. I was still in therapy. I was still talking to friends and family. I was being intentional about what I shared with them and intentional about what I didn't share with them. And this is a really important piece because I think You need to decide how and when you process different parts of your story with different groups of people. And some of it has to do with where is it appropriate to share. Certainly with our younger students, we would share parts of our story, but not all of it. And some of it has to do with time. If you're in the middle of a deep heartbreak, maybe you need to first process that in another setting before you bring it into the classroom or before you share it with people that are casual acquaintances. So I think the intentionality piece of it is really crucial. And we would never want to force someone else to share something that they don't feel comfortable with or ready to share with us, which is why I think modeling is the most effective way to invite invite vulnerability. And the other piece of this, depending on who you're speaking to and the age of the audience, if you're a ninth grade health teacher, and your students are always going to be in ninth grade, and you're going to talk to them and try to model vulnerability and draw it out of them each year. That's one thing. If you're a parent, what you share with a two-year-old is very different than what you share with a six-year-old is very different than 13 and 16. So I think having the intention and awareness and presence of the age of the audience that you're speaking to and who you want to invite to be more vulnerable and who you want to draw this out of and the grace in which you do it, I think is really important. Thank you in particular, Ellie, for sharing so bravely your experience. I think in my own experience with my own grief and loss, one of the greatest challenges that I faced and continue to face is what society tells people they should be saying to someone who's grieving or what people think they should say. And oftentimes it feels worse or is more damaging. This is not grief and loss, but even in this moment today, I'm severely pregnant. And there are the people who will check in and say, you got this, you're almost there. Like give me a pep up talk. 
And then there are other people in my life who check in and say, I can't even imagine all that you're carrying, all that you're holding, but not trying to give me advice or trying to pet me up. And I so appreciate just being seen for being the founder CEO who's running a company, who has a two-year-old, who has a four-year-old. That's what I want to be seen for. I don't know if it feels more comfortable for people to operate in this place of, you got this, here's your pep-up talk, than to just be vulnerable, to just acknowledge what's in front of us. Why do you think that is so hard? And what do we have to do as a society to move beyond these tropes? of what to say to someone who's struggling. We have categorized some emotions as good as a culture and some emotions as bad. So I think it's about a cultural reframe. Right now we see anger and we see sadness and we see grief and we see fear as sort of quote unquote negative emotions. But if we put them in a different category as this is the richness of human life, This is a tapestry of feeling. And if I'm a person that's going to show up for life in the richness of the multidimensional nature of it, it means that sometimes I'm going to feel these ways, these ways that we've labeled as negative. And I think that undoing that hierarchy and letting ourselves rethink the way we've categorized that will allow us to show up for someone else without, quote unquote, pepping them up because it's our discomfort with someone else's discomfort that forces them to bypass that, right? Because we still have this cultural notion that like, we need to all be happy and joyful all the time. And that that's a picture of success. What if success looked like honesty? What if success looked like showing up fully for what is? And that means that sometimes life is sad. And sometimes our world is deeply unfair. And there are aspects of our culture that are broken, that we need to work together collectively to fix. And what if we allow ourselves to really feel that brokenness? Because that's the way that we're going to be able to create change. It's the cultural bypassing of all this stuff, right, that is perpetuating a lot of the problems that we sort of have in our culture. And it happens on the micro scale between one person and another person when we try to tell them to cheer up and pep up and feel better fast. What do you think then are the steps we can take both as individuals and as a society to move us forward? Yes, we've made a lot of progress in terms of normalizing conversations and mental health. Absolutely. We still have a long way to go. Just last week, I read this article around the number of specifically middle and high school students who are avoiding mental health support because of the fear of having to bring this to the adults in their lives, whether it's their guidance counselor, their caregiver. And so we still hesitate to be, and even resist being emotionally honest with one another. What are the steps we can do first as individuals and then as a collective to get there. If we all lived our commitments, if our commitment is we want someone to tell us, oh, you're caring a lot right now, we have to be the change in the relationship. We have to say to the other person, I see you. You are caring a lot right now. I have a good friend of mine who says, it's so loving. She says, call me up on the phone and empty the bowl. I'm not going to ask any questions. 10 minutes, say it all. I know it sounds simple. I know it feels like it should be fancier, but after all this research that I did, after all this work we've done in the pilot program with the Kevin Love School, after the vulnerability that Kevin modeled in his letter, after all these layers of evidence that we have, it boils down to this simple piece of let's show up for each other and say, 
you can empty the bowl. This is a safe place for you to tell me what's really on your mind. And that really is at the heart of what it means to shift the stigma around mental health. So I think that's the micro level, but it's also the macro because what the macro is, is a whole bunch of relationships. Sarah and I use the metaphor of the garden because we get overwhelmed sometimes. We say, this feels like we're trying to change an entire giant landscape of issues. And we say, okay, we've got this garden. We're going to water this garden. And the garden is the relationships we have with our inner community, but it's also our jobs and the people that we work with in our jobs. So we can get overwhelmed if we feel like we have to change the stigma for everyone. But if we can work on watering our garden, changing the stigma in our relationships, saying to the people that we care about, I am here and you can talk about what's really going on. If everyone does that, that's what adds up to changing the stigma around mental health. That's the thing that kind of shifts the needle. Are there things we can do on the policy level? Absolutely. Sure. Schools should be places where we have mental health support just as We have chemistry, right? Absolutely, we should be making policy changes too. But that can feel overwhelming. So let's do the both and. I think it's a both and. We can work to change things in terms of policy in schools and make schools places where mental health support is accessible for everyone. And we can work on our relationships with the people that we care about. That was beautiful. I love this visual of emptying the bowl, calling a friend and emptying the bowl for 10 minutes. I'm going to start offering that to the people in my life. You both have backgrounds in activism. Can you talk about the correlation between developing our skills at emotional expression and how that can help address larger societal issues like racial inequity, social injustice, environmental gender injustice? How did these social emotional skills support larger social movements? So I think one really important piece is all of us learning how to respond to each other's heartbreak, for lack of a better word, with respect. Because when we start to bring in our stories, the danger would be to reinforce additional harm on marginalized populations. And so we are trying to be the change that we want to see in the world on a larger scale by doing it in the classroom with students' stories. And we know that that will translate because students will learn how to respect each other's stories. And it is amazing, Sarah, what we've seen with students. We've asked the teachers in the pilot, when a student shares a vulnerable story, how do the other students respond to that? Is there judgment? Is there name-calling? Is there reinforcement of stereotypes? How does that operate in the classroom? And what we've heard from this pilot and what I've seen in my own classroom is that students will follow the lead of their teacher. And so if the teacher builds this space of empathy and respect, the students, that's how they're going to learn it. And then we can ripple it out into the world. I think no matter what the issues are that we're facing as a society, if you can help kids feel safe to get their thoughts on paper, to be their authentic selves and feel seen and heard, I think it kind of will solve multiple problems and won't make everything seem so overwhelming because they know how to just take those baby steps to expressing themselves and feeling their emotions. What do you think it is about the creative process that is so powerful in facilitating our emotional growth, whether it's journaling, drawing, dancing, creating music? What is it? Well, I don't know if this is true for either of you, but I'll just share my own experience. Sometimes I spend a large part of my day 
not in my body, feeling my body, you know, like the sensations that are moving through me. And part of it too is that schools so value the mind that we sort of spend all this time focusing on our thoughts and there's less of a focus on the physical sensation and movement and what my body feels like today. So we become sort of disassociated from our bodies. And so for me, creative expression drops me back in to those sensations, allows me to arrive. And music is, for me personally, the best access point. The fastest access point for me is to hear a song. Yesterday, we were driving a car and an Eagles song came on, an old Eagles song that I used to listen to as a kid. And I got like tears in my eyes kind of remembering this memory from my childhood. And my husband was like, are you okay? But for me, it feels good to cry. It's like I needed to get those tears out. There's a parenting expert that I love who says you should roll out the red carpet for your kids' emotions. And I feel like the same is true for myself too. I want to roll out the red carpet and music allows me to welcome it in. And then writing is the other one because you're moving your hand across the page. And as the story gets put on the page, it's kind of like time travel. As the story gets put on the page, you get to go back in your memory to that moment in time when that event happened that was difficult. And you get to process it sometimes for the first time. And so one of the questions I asked in my research to the students was, did it feel good for you to write about that hard thing that happened from the past? And most of them said to me, well, I wouldn't use the word good, but it felt important. I was glad I did it. I needed to do it. And I think the reason is because it gave them the chance to go back and process for the very first time that thing that had happened that they felt like they had to shove away into the closet and close the door. What would you say to someone who's resistant to accessing their own creativity or who says, I'm not creative, I'm not a writer, I'm not a musician, I'm not a dancer? What would you say? We value the process over the product. You're not writing a poem that's supposed to be quote unquote good, right? Or publishable or on par with a professional poet. You're doing it because in the process of the writing lies the value. And I think when you take the pressure off the product, most people can free themselves up a little bit and enjoy the experience itself. This has been so much fun. I feel like I could speak to you both about this work for much longer than we have today. Before we close, want to give us an opportunity to reflect on the dialogue that we've had thus far and think of something in particular that we're taking with us as we move on with our days into whatever responsibilities lie ahead or whatever's next. So let's just take a moment to identify something resonant that we're taking with us from this conversation. For me, I love this idea of a tapestry of feeling and undoing the hierarchy of feelings. And I'm going to take that with me as I respond to and continue to engage in these emotional check-ins that have been coming my way, but undoing the hierarchy of feelings. I think my takeaway is going to be, even just watching the two of you speak, my takeaway is in every interaction you have socially with people, if you are present, if you are vulnerable, if you are genuine, you always can find that common ground with another person. And you leave a conversation better off than you were when you entered it. And you have more understanding of someone else and you have more empathy for someone else and more appreciation. So I'm kind of taking away 
the reminder of how important it is in conversations to really be genuine and really be present. I think what I'm going to take away is a feeling, actually. I'm going to take away a feeling of hope. My mom had said to me once, when you're feeling hopeless, if you take action, one action, your brain starts to change and says, oh, we're doing something. And I think this call today, honestly, Sarah, it was a gift to me because I think I was just feeling a sense of hopelessness over what we can do collectively to support young people who I know are struggling so much, especially in light of last week. And I think this call was a way of kind of taking action. I want to be honest with you, it was a great gift to me. So thank you for the work that you're doing, bringing people together to create change because these conversations can create change and that's really what we need. So I just, I'm feeling that Gratitude for you, Sarah, for bringing us together and then this imprint of hope. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Jacobson and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.